Hello, welcome to the Magic Musicals and Theatre Podcast with me, Alice Arnold. This week, I went backstage to the Duke of York's theatre, into the dressing room of the man that is Giles Torreira. He is absolutely multi-talented. He's an actor, a singer, a musician, and just an all-round really, really nice guy. Here we are, backstage at the Duke of York's, in Giles Torreira's dressing room which he shares, doesn't get one to himself, even though he's starring in this play. Which I is, Tom, yeah. Yeah, which is Rosmus Home. Yes. Which is an Ibsen play, so a very not often done Ibsen play. No. Uh, has to be said. And the last thing we sort of heard about you, really, you were winning an Olivier Award for, for Hamilton. Yeah. And the next thing, we've got you in Ibsen's Rosmus Home, mm. which is a, a leap, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe Hamilton was the leap for you. Um, I think it's all a leap, really. Plays are about, you know, the the play that I did before Hamilton was The Merchant of Venice. That's one thing. The one before that yeah. was Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, in the, about sort of Chicago in the nineteen twenties and blues music. So there's always that's what I like about um, doing theatre is that you're constantly moving from from. Um, Time to time to period to period to subject to subject, country. No, it won't matter. Oh. We, it's live atmosphere. Okay, There's brilliant. a siren going by. Yeah, we are I right in the middle of the West End. I think they're arresting us, so I think we'll be, <laughs> we'll be all right. Um, so yeah, I, I like I like moving around, but in terms of in terms of going from Hamilton, I was looking for something completely different, something that would just. Um, I always look for something that I haven't done before, that will really get my attention and. Um, and that was certainly the case with this Ibsen. I've never been in an Ibsen play before. Uh, Ian Rickson working with him as a director was definitely a big um, attraction to it. So yeah, it was it was different, but that's that's what I like. I think that's what most actors like. And this play was written in 1886, mm. but yet, and there's a lot of political diatribe in it, and but it just seems incredibly current. And oh, I don't good. know if that's that's I think partly credit to the way that you all act it because it's absolutely clear but right. also to the writing of the translation the original yeah. writing but then the translation I guess yeah because what was interesting is learning that when Ibsen wrote the play he'd been out of Norway for a long time and he came back and was really surprised at the kind of political climate that was going on in Norway at the time um, and and more more than whether it was the right or the left it was the kind of um, the animosity and the fighting uh, and the the kind of um, uh, the treatment of um, people's opposing views uh, people on the either on on either side how people weren't listening to each other and the consequences of all of that which to me is exactly where we are now absolutely I mean that's what I mean it spoke so much to the current political situation yeah and just and your character because what Ibsen does is he puts the left and the right point of view. Yes. And you basically espouse the the right wing. Yes, essentially, yeah. Policy. Yeah. Um, but when both a traditionalist, views, I would say. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the conservative yeah. with a with a small yeah C and big C, I suppose, yeah. in this. But but <laughs> yeah. um but yeah, the traditionalist mm. against the the the, the radical, the reformers. The radical, yeah, and um, it's. Interesting because both views are are flawed mm-hmm. in the in the and you see the flaws in both sides of those arguments, yes. which is just 
So the so the play itself doesn't really come out one way or the other. I think. Well, that's the good thing is that then there's so much left for the audience to do. You know, the audience the Ibsen as a great writer says, okay, this is the situation that these characters are in, and I'm not going to say that you should, you the audience or you the listener, you the observer should be moved in that direction or that direction. I'm going to let you choose which way you'd like to go. So what's really interesting is hearing the conversations or getting wind of the conversations that I had during the interval and after the show from the audience about what, one, as you just say, the parallels to now, but also what they would do and, oh, but I agree with that person, oh, but I agree with her as well, but then also she's manipulating him. And that's, that's really juicy, I think, to let the audience really be involved in it. Um, in terms of how they would conduct themselves in in similar situation, which of course we are. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's as, as I say, you do it brilliantly because it is one of those plays that you do have to concentrate, but it's so clear. Great. Well, the arguments are put across so clearly oh, that you go right. I absolutely understand what there's. Unlike Brilliant. well, there's another great speech which is basically saying that poli- people shouldn't be involved in politics if it's too complicated for them to understand. <laughs> I think that's quite relevant to today, don't you? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Decisions being forced on people um, who are not necessarily uh, equipped to make a um, a, uh, a sort of reasoned mm. judgment on it. But the po- but the point is, I think in the play that he's trying to say is that actually there's a kind of willful keeping of information from people, um, and then yet allowing them to. Uh, so there's a kind of manipulation of people. Well, because they also about. talk about the press and how the press yeah. contorts things. And yeah. well, don't we know it? You know, that's exactly. that, all these arguments are so current. Yeah. It's amazing. And that's and that I think really, I mean, it's it's there within Ibsen's work, but it's testament to to Duncan and Ian um, Duncan McMillan, who's written the adaptation, and Ian Rickson, who's directed it, who've really brought all those arguments and those sentiments um, out of of Ibsen's. Uh, Ibsen's original work and really kind of served them up for hopefully our 21st century ears and eyes. And away from the politics of it, of course there are other issues, which I was also amazed that this was written in 1886 because we have illegitimacy, adultery and incest. Yeah. And yeah. apparently <laughs> apparently Freud was, did you know, he wrote a paper on it? Yes. On this. Yeah, he wrote a he really, He would have really had a heyday with it, yeah. wouldn't he? he I mean, it's really all in there. Interesting a paper about um, Rebecca West, who is the central female mm-hmm. character. And again, um, you know, what? Uh, one of the other things that really struck me about it is this, within the heart of this play, is this woman, this young woman, who at the end of the play, as you'll see without kind of spoiling it, in a in a room full of um, uh, of men, says, "I'm going to speak now. It's my turn to speak. This is what I want to say, and you're all going to listen to it." And that kind of completely blew my mind. Um, the way that he's uh, the way that he's written that part, and uh, yeah, so there's lots in there. I think which which people, if you don't know the play, and many of us didn't know the play either, mm. is quite unexpected in a brilliant way. I think it's quite unexpected. Um, so, Charles Ferreira, yeah. let's uh, talk about a little bit about um, before Rosmer's Home. Yeah. Um, of course, we had Hamilton, mm-hmm. which was... Would you pick that out as, as... Well, you must do, I suppose, as one of your absolute highlights of yeah. your career. Cause Without, that was, of my yeah. life, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was um, from the beginning... From the time I met 
uh, from the time I met the team right until the time I finished was like two and a half years. So uh, there was a big period of um, of auditioning. There was a sort of big gap in the middle of auditioning, and then there was a quite a long period before we then started rehearsals, and then I was in it for a year. So it was quite a long time. And uh, from the beginning, it was an absolute joy. I mean, it was very, very hard work, um, but it was one of those things which the moment I heard it, I thought, well, I, I, I one, I have to do that, and two, it's not something I've ever um, encountered before in terms of the writing and just the level of of extraordinary, kind of what I call relentless genius of, of Lin-Manuel, the song after song after song, lyric after lyric, melody after melody, all these amazing characters. And then when you see the production, I saw it before I auditioned in New York, and um, and it completely blew me away, because you've, you've been used to hearing it, and then you sort of imagine what's going on, and then when you actually see it, realized physically, I, I was blown away again. So for, it was just an extraordinary, every moment of it was extraordinary. And then working with the company, um, the best people I've ever worked with, the great, you know, um, I've made completely lifelong friends, real kind of um, brother and sister relationships, I would say. Uh, partly because they're so good, partly because they, they're the ones who can sort of understand what it is that you're going through. <laughs> the kind of mountain of trying to find Aaron Burr and trying to get it right and trying to remember where you're supposed to be and all the songs and all of that. <laughs> the, the, the kind of nuts and bolts of it you can look across and go, well, Jan Westman knows exactly what, because he's playing Hamilton. Yeah. And Rachel John knows exactly what I'm talking about because she's playing uh, Angelica. Um, and everyone on the stage, every single person in that company could sort of understand the sort of emotional, intellectual, psychological journey that you've been on. Um, and then, that's even before you get to the audience. The audience who who are, who have, who, who it's, for whom Hamilton is such a, important part of their um, their lives in many ways um, that they've enjoyed and that they feel passionately about to then share that with an audience is amazing it never ceased to amaze me looking out into the audience because as Bert you spend a lot of time looking and talking to the audience and seeing young people who you knew were coming to the theatre for the first time and yeah. you knew were seeing things um, that they'll never forget, and to be part of that was was. And you knew that you were going into a hit because it had been in New York. It was a, already a massive hit. So yeah. Unless it was suddenly the English audiences weren't going to like it, it was always going to be a really, really. Well, you hot never know. Ticket. You never know. I mean, yes, it well, had been extraordinary on Broadway, yeah. but that you knew that there was a there was a um, there was an anticipation for it here, so that it was going to. But whether it would fully land in the same way and you never really know I mean you, you, you like you say unless unless something disastrous happened but you never quite know until you get out mm. there now one of your roles at the National you learned to play the double bass mm. have yeah. you kept it up um, have you got a double bass no, it's a big I thing I, I know and I was going to get one <laughs> I know I was going to get one it's like, that's well, taking up it? most of the sitting room yeah. that was, Ma, that was um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom at the National the August Wilson play, and yeah, it was about Ma Rainey was a was a blues musician in the twenties and thirties, and she it was about her and her band recording uh, um, some music in the, in Chicago. So that's what the play is. So I was one of the members of the band, 
and uh, I was the bass player in the band. So yeah, I had I wanted to um, play as much of it as possible. So, and I knew that I was going to be doing it. I don't know, maybe four or five months before we started rehearsals. So I said, "Can you get me a bass and I can practice it?" Um, and uh, and they did. So I practiced it and I managed to learn what it was that I needed. Is it to tuned learn. to the same strings as a bass guitar? Yeah, it is, but okay. it's. It's, there's no frets on it on, a, on, a, yes. on an upright bass, and it's a lot. The fretboard is a lot longer, so it's your hands have to sort of stretch, and the strings are actually thicker, so it's a lot harder. So even though I'd played bass, electric bass, a little bit before, it was completely different. It was like learning the saxophone or something. It was completely different, um, but it was great fun. And then I thought, actually, I'll try and keep it up, and I'll try and get, I'll treat myself to one. And I didn't. I haven't done yet. Um, and actually, I had a couple of gigs last weekend. Um, me singing with a, a, a trio and uh, a guy playing an upright bass and I thought, oh, I should have had a little I, go. I yeah. should have had a little go, but I haven't done. But I will, I will, yeah. I will when, I, when I get a bigger house. Because <laughs> <yeah. laughs> you you're a musician as yeah. well and a filmmaker. Like, yeah. Tell us about, you made a documentary yeah. which is about modern perspectives of Shakespeare, is that yeah. right? Yeah. Um, we had the idea, it was my, my friend who I trained at drama school with, Dan Paul, we uh, both actors, and um, and we both sort of came to love Shakespeare, but that wasn't always the case, and we found it quite difficult to begin with when we were younger. So we kind of thought, well, what, can we try and do something to um, rectify that? Because lots of young people have the same situation, same experience. Is it you feel that Shakespeare's not for you, or that it's for other people, or it's too difficult for you to understand? But actually, if you see a really good Shakespeare, there's nothing like it. If you go to the Globe, if you go to the RSC or the National or anywhere, and you see a really good Shakespeare, it's very easy to at least follow the emotional situation, mm-hmm. the story. You might not, go, might not get all the language intricacies, but the stories are incredible. So we wanted to sort of explore that, why people are put off by Shakespeare and what you can do to kind of um, break down those barriers. So we... we um, we decided to make the film completely on our own. It was like a documentary, so we had a little road trip where we would go um, with our cameras and talk to people uh, performing Shakespeare, actors who performed Shakespeare, theatre companies. We went into uh, with a company that go into prisons and use Shakespeare to work with the um, inmates in prison. So we did that in Ireland, we did it in Germany. Um, and it sort of turned into this incredible thing where people latched onto the idea of these two guys just sort of trying to make this thing happen um, and we went to America, we went to Germany we went to Spain um, we spoke to people like Judy Dench and Ian McKellen and Tom Hiddleston and um, all these incredible actors uh, and yeah and so we ended up making a, a, a film which in fact in Hamilton lots of people would, after the show I'd meet lots of young people uh, and they would say, "Oh yeah, we see, we saw your documentary, and you know, it helped in our with our exams yeah. in Canada or wherever." Right. Um, so it was. Uh, we we sort of. Um, it was again. It was hard work. It took a few years to, because we did it on our own. It took a few years. So it was one of those kind of labour of love, passion projects. Because um, there's been quite a lot of debate recent, very recently actually, about whether Shakespeare Shakespeare should still be taught in schools. Yeah. And it sort of comes up every now and again, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and they send people saying, oh, it's old-fashioned, we should just ditch it. Yeah. But I think what you were saying is that it's that thing about the emotional journey that everyone goes on, on the stories. And I think people get bogged down with trying to understand every single line. Yeah. And my theory with it has always <coughs> been, it, just let it wash over you. Let the music yeah. of it 
wash over you yeah. and you'll get it. And you can come back to those beaches later when you're grown up or yeah, whatever and, and analyse them if you want. And the beauty of it is yes. so extraordinary yeah. in, in, in the verse that, that you'll get that later. But if you don't get it all, yeah. it, it doesn't matter. You still get an amazing yes. well, we thought my that was, theory. Well, the it. interesting, yeah, I think that's certainly right. I think that's absolutely right. And we found that there was a period in probably the Victorians where it sort of theatre became something, you know, you've got it fit into the whole class situation and it became something for um, people who had money and wealth and station and position to be able to go to the theatre and Shakespeare sort of got lumped in with all of that. And then once it got put on the syllabus and in education um, and your education is um, sort of... Um, uh, judged by how well you can write about that Hamlet's to be or not to be or whatever. Once it sort of gets into that world, the academic world, then of course it's very easy for people to be put off because unless you are going to university in Oxbridge and doing all of that, then you feel well that's 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 it what Shakespeare is. It's not yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. So it was uh, it was trying to redress that balance a yeah. little bit. And so you're writing a book, aren't you, for yeah. young actors? Yeah. Imparting your wisdom. Well, <laughs> well, no, I'm not. What wisdom say, I, mean, I have? You have a, I think you have a lot because you've, well, done, you've well, done such a variety of work. Well, yeah, be. and I thought that it would be. I always thought when I came to drama school, I went to Mount View, and when I came many years ago to London, um, I felt like I didn't know a lot about the theatre. We didn't go to the theatre. Where a lot. did you? Where Where were you brought up? I then? was brought in up in Hertfordshire, in Stevenage. Yeah, okay. which is not that far. Yeah, but it is sort of far enough that it's. You um, weren't going to the West End. Everywhere. We weren't going to the West End unless we couldn't afford it. My mum was on her own, and we couldn't we couldn't afford to come to London and go to the theatre. So when I came down, I kind of felt like I was catching up. I always felt like I was catching up a little bit. I didn't wasn't fortunate enough to go to Stratford upon Avon and like everyone else seemed to. So I kind of, but I had a really brilliant teacher. Who, who was our voice teacher called Claudette Williams, and now she's at Central School of Speech and Drama. She's the she's the voice teacher there, and um, she really kind of she would take me out, and we'd go to galleries, and we would go and see exhibitions, and she would say, "Go and see this play." She would give me books. She would give me writers um, like Maya Angelou and James Baldwin um, and Alice Walker and Zora Neale Hurston, and all these incredible writers. And she would show me films. Okay, this is Laurence Olivier's Henry V watch all of this stuff and and I was really grateful for that um and I always thought oh if I if I ever get to the opportunity where I feel like I've got something to offer in the same way then I would um you know so uh it's been something I've been planning for a while and uh I've I've worked with lots of different directors as an actor but then also I wrote to I worked with Peter Brook so I um gosh I went with him and did some work with him and studied with him for a bit. Um, and when Nick Heighton was at the National, I wrote to him and said, can I come into rehearsals a bit and just watch some rehearsals without being the actor in the room? And he let me. So, And then there was another period where I, I wanted to look at auditions because auditions are something we don't really talk about as actors. Um, well, you sort of have practice, but you don't really talk about the psychology of, of, of how difficult it is. So I wrote to a brilliant casting director... Uh, and uh, said, can I come in and just sit in, in auditions? And that was amazing, to sit for weeks and just watch how actors come in and what they do and what they what what, um, what trips them up or when things really work, when people are really confident, all those different things, um, sort of in preparation for a book which, I, which hopefully would be useful to 
to young actors, young theatre makers, young directors, um, that actually wasn't from a director's perspective, because lots of books, I think, are written by directors about theatre. Mm. Um, and if they're written by actors, they tend to be, you know, autobiographies or memoirs or whatever. So I kind of thought, well, if, I've, if I'm in a position where I can have something useful to offer, then I would like to. Um, and after Hamilton, I thought, okay, this is, this is the time. This is the time to do it. So, yeah. When's what, it out? Hopefully, ne hopefully ne this time next year. Okay. We'll look, I'll look out for it. Yeah. Um, you've got so many strings to your bow with the filmmaking and the writing and the playing the double bass and the, <laughs> <laughs> and the singing and the, and the acting. How do you prioritise or do you just let life kind of wave you on to the next thing? Yeah, yeah, I do really. I never really think about that. People often say that. People often ask that question and I never really think about it. Um, I just like stories. I just like making up stories. Um, when I was, I remember when I was a kid, I had, I got ill, I had pneumonia. And I was in, when I was about eight, and um, I was in hospital over Christmas, <laughs> over Christmas. It was quite, quite tragic, really. I wasn't, but it wasn't as tragic as it could have been. But um, I was in hospital over Christmas, and there was, you know, in children's wards, they have, the walls were painted with cartoon characters yeah. and superhero characters and all that kind of stuff. And I remember, like, li I do remember really clearly lying in bed at night and being quite miserable because I was away from my mum and my sisters over Christmas. But whenever the, and at night, you know when they sort of got the, n the nurse's sort of station where the nurse would sit, and then you sort of the corridor where people sort of walk up and down. As the people would walk up and down, like this shadow would cast on the, in the room. And I remember being sort of awake and just sort of, it was almost like the, Mickey Mouse and the Spider-Man and the Incredible Hulk on the wall and the Bugs Bunny were kind of moving and that really fascinated me and I would sort of make up stories about what they were doing and and so for me stories has always been the the, the main thing so in that situation you're making up things and you're also being the characters and you're also deciding what they're going to say and what they're going to do and what the situations are so I think for me it's, it's always been about whether I'm writing the thing or 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 um acting in it or writing a song or the music it to me it's all kind of one thing i don't really see it as um well you have to have quite a lot of different talents to do that you see yeah yeah, H yeah. have you have you written a play yes yeah yeah i'm uh i'm uh i've been in the process of doing that for the last three or four years um with the national and bristol old vic and so we are <coughs> We've had some workshops and we've had lots of development with it and we're looking at putting it on in February is supposed to be when it's happening. Right. Um, at Bristol That'll come round before you know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because th this, this yeah. Um, Rosmus home has a limited season. Yeah, we go to um, August. Yeah, so is, well, next, obviously, there will be that in the pipeline. Yeah. W do you think you'd go back the musical? Well, you don't know because you're going to let it just come to you, aren't you? Uh, is, there a, is there a plan for the rest of the year? There's a plan. The rest of the year is pretty much writing. Once I finish here, I'm going to take some time to do some writing on the play. That needs mm -hmm. to be done because that's happening in spring. So I'll be concentrating on that and um, just taking a bit of a breather, I think. I sort of, because of all these different things, I tend to sort of move from one thing to the next to the next to the next. So um, after Hamilton, I was like, okay, you need to just, just have some time to just do nothing and just relax and, and chill out. Um, 
And then this really fascinating play by Ibsen came up. <laughs> so I was like, well, I've got to do that. Um, so I th the plan is after this to just spend the rest of the year writing and just doing what needs to be done on the play. Because next year's seems to be, touch wood, it's, it's going to be, I know what I'm going to be doing next year. So, um, Can you tell us? Well, one is the play. That's yeah. the first half of it. And are you in it, or you just written? Yeah, I mean, I'm just written it. But are you going to be? It. You're going to be in it too. I wasn't going to okay, be. Okay, all right. I wasn't going to be because uh, I I can't. It was just too much to sort of wear the t two hats. Um, so I, I and I couldn't really think about. And it's based on a historical event and historical characters. Um, so it wasn't. I couldn't concentrate at all on thinking about being in it. Um, but then, after our last workshop. Um, our, our director is Tom Morris who uh, runs Bristol and directed Warhorse and all these incredible shows he said no no you have you realise you have to be in it and actually at that point because we'd we'd spent so much time developing it and it had gone through the various stages of of um, drafts and writing for the first time I felt actually I think I could um, conceive of, of actually being in it now as opposed to sort of wearing trying to wear lots of hats at the mm. same time and pretty much most of the writing is done um so yeah so that's one so and that's then one and, and then, then uh, the other one i can't really talk about <laughs> i can't really talk about no yeah all right we won't make you but it's the um, but it's theater but so okay. and ho hopefully i mean you know it's like you don't want to sort of um you don't jinx, jinx things no yeah no are you good at relaxing are you good at taking some time out um, and just what do you and what do you do how do you do that do you know what? In um, during a, a run of a play, I am quite good. Uh, you know, um, like now, for instance, when you're up and running in the day, I can completely just chill out and do nothing, and then you go and do the play. I'm quite good at that balance. In between plays and projects, I'm not. I tend to. I'd like to think I am, <laughs> but I'm not really at all. My friends and family would say, you know, you're always doing something. You're always yeah. doing something. You're always doing something. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, again, part of the thing of your question about sort of all these different things is that for me, it was I never really thought of like a, as a career. I never really thought in terms of this is a career ABC and then I'm going to get to here and do that by the time I'm this. And I'm not. I always like to do things which really just interested me and would challenge me and, and I could be really passionate about. And so for me, I, I, I like to just think, okay, well, if something interesting really comes along, great. If there's something that I want to tell or a kind of story, then I'll do that. But I like to try and be as open as possible with. But you're Renaissance man. That's uh, the thing. That's a, that's a yeah. That's a nice that's word for it. Well, yeah. But but you are. That's what that's what you are. You just have many many talents. Do you know what? Oh, one of my one of my uh, heroes is Orson Welles. Yeah. And he did a he did a really interesting production here, the Duke of York's, of. Um, Moby Dick, which is quite a famous one because he used British actors. Kenneth Williams was in it, Joan Plowright was in it, um, Thingy Jackson was in it, uh, and uh, yeah, and they and so he and he would always do whatever he you know, and I quite like that. I, maybe it's not something that's but I think really in creative industry it's very hard to say, well, I'm going to go on this line because you never know where the line no, is going right. to take you. It's not like working for a corporation where you no. know I'm going to be, you know chief financial officer by such and right. such a time it's not that kind of life no. is it and if you can i mean what a joy that you you have the freedom and the ability to do basically 
take your pick of the next thing that comes up. But then, that's interesting, because then it's that it's not necessarily a, always a choice, because I think that like also being an actor of colour or a right, an, an artist of colour is that I always say to young people that you have to... If you, if you aren't seeing, getting the opportunities that you want, make the opportunity yourself. So, so if you're not getting cast for the things that you like or in the productions that you like, or the, just write it yourself in the same way that Lin-Manuel Miranda did um, with Hamilton. He said, okay, I'm gonna write, I'm passionate about this story. I love hip hop and I've seen this book about this founding father who I knew nothing about. Um, I'm going to write that story. And as improbable as that might sound, there's stories of him going to the White House and doing it for the Obamas and saying, you know, I've got this opening song and it's about the founding fathers and it's hip-hop and people's kind of laughing. I've just read Michelle Obama's book and she talks about that uh, when they right. went to the White House. And right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but I think you sort of have to. I think you have to. Um, and especially now, I think it's more difficult for um, artists of colour. I think it's more difficult for young working-class actors and performers and writers so and it's more difficult for theatre companies um, even though say for instance figures are up in the West End in terms of box office and stuff, it's still hard for theatre makers it's still hard for filmmakers so I think especially now when you're in a situation where you can have access to um, software and whatever you like do your own thing. Yeah, you, make can, your you own. can make your own stuff now. Yeah. I mean, it's all out there on, yeah. the, on the internet and you don't, it doesn't need to cost a fortune. No. You can film things cheaply. You can yeah. make things in a way that you couldn't. I mean, Rosmus Holmes, in, you were talking about being an actor of colour mm. and I was just, I just <clears> thought, how brilliant this is casting colourblind in, in the sense that, that th- there's no reason why your character would be black or white. It's just... You, you are cast because you play the part absolutely yeah. brilliantly. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I wonder if that it's ever been done with a black actor in your character before. Probably yeah. not. Yeah. Who knows? I bet I not. Know. Probably not. But um. But I do think people's attitudes to that have changed a bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, yeah you, you're a great actor. Play the part. It doesn't matter. It has yeah. no relevance. What what yeah. What color you you are playing no, that character? Because, I mean, I, my my own personal thing is that it, is that. For me, like, if I go to the theatre, theatre doesn't really happen on the stage. Theatre happens in the audience's imagination, I think. And so what's happening on stage is a, is a series of um, images and signals and, and things to trigger our imagination. Shakespeare does that brilliantly. He says, you know, when we talk of horses, think you see them, printing their proud mm-hmm. in the receiving mm-hmm. earth, battles and all this. He does all of that in the audience's imagination. He knows that the... the, the, the the strongest weapon that Shakespeare has is the audience's imagination. I think all great writers do that. So for me, I only have to really concentrate on what's, in certain situations, have to only concentrate on what's going on emotionally and psychologically with the character in terms of the situation. And then you do the rest within your imagination, whether that person or those people in your imagination um, are one color or another is, is not up to me and 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 I think you see it as you see it which is why if you have Shakespeare you can have Shakespeare in any country in the world and I think after Shakespeare it's probably Ibsen who's the most performed playwright I think Mm. I learned that when we we started Um, why is that it's because he's interested in they are interested in the universal human experience so if you have Ibsen being performed in Nigeria well um, in the in the in that in the imaginations of that audience, 
they are seeing one set of people in Japan, it's another set of people. And I think really what you're then cutting to the heart of is the human experience. I was going to say, it's the common human experience that it doesn't matter Hmm. where where you are, what country, the stories and the experiences and the emotions. Yes. Transgress, no, that's not the right word. Translate. Yes, to... To any culture, to any any culture, because they're just human. Yeah, and what struck me about the play is that I thought, well, actually, I could absolutely hear all of the sentiments that I, that my character um, Andreas Kroll expresses, expressed in any African country that you could you could pick. The idea that actually, um, as he says, uh, the a country is its shared values, things that it's taken generations to build, that we have inherited from our forefathers, is what he says. And you could, anyone could say that. Anyone could say mm. that. Now, that could, you know, you, you know, that in one sense is also make America great again, but it's also um, uh, a, a community in South Africa or, 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 or any, um, any um, colony saying, this is our land. And this is this is the the land and the home that we have fought for, and it is now being overrun, which is kind of what Kroll imagines is happening. Is this kind of radicals are sort of mm. um, infesting the country and sort of um, threatening uh, his his uh, not only his uh, life and his experience, but also that of his forefathers and of his children. So the idea that people um, are of home and what. Uh, what community is and what heritage is, I think is any anyone can feel that, mm. can't they? I mean, yeah, it's universal. It's universal. Yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. Giles Schreiber, we've taken up like way too much of your time. It's uh, been absolutely on, fascinating talking to you. It Thank really you so has. Much. It is a brilliant production. Absolutely loved it. Thank um, you. To the audience listening to this podcast, you have to go and see it um, because you have to see what happens at the end. Uh, you'll enjoy the whole play, but you have to see this bit at the end because <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. Um, thank you really, so thank much you. for talking to us. It's, it's great been to, great absolutely to hear all brilliant. Stuff. Thank, thank you. you. If you enjoyed that podcast, why not download some of the other ones we've done? You can find them all on the website. And, and if you did enjoy it, you can also rate us. You can do some, I don't know, something where you say you really liked it. Give us a review. All that stuff. Feedback. That's what we want. Listener.